And Lord, we pray this morning as we open your word to Romans chapter 15, as we continue to work our way through uh, the closing of this book, Lord, that you would just uh, lead us and guide us, help our minds to be fresh and alert and enable us to understand the word of God as it's presented to us. And Lord, we also pray for our children as they're dismissed to their classes, that you would just bless them and uh, just allow the teachers to teach them uh, through the power of your spirit, the word of God in a way that they could understand it and apply it to their own lives. And we also even pray for those over in the nursery. We also think of those who are uh, traveling or maybe sick this morning, and we just pray that you would uh, uh, just be with them in a special way and uh, help them to recover from whatever ails them. And Lord, we do, I do pray for uh, uh, Gloria's husband, Bill, and I just pray that you would continue to minister to him and just be gracious to her as they go through this time together. We thank you and we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You can turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Continue to work our way through the closing text here of this book. We've been in here for quite a while. And uh, uh, it's wonderful to be able to study through books of the Bible. I don't know what I could would do if I every week had to come up with a new topic to teach on. That would be crazy. I'm just not very creative that way. And so it's wonderful to be able to open up the Bible and just uh, go as far as we can and then open it up next week and continue where we left off. Uh, The last time we taught out of Romans was several weeks ago before uh, the resurrection week. And um, we want to reacquaint ourselves with where we are in the book. We're in Romans chapter 15. These are kind of Paul's closing comments as well as chapter uh, 16. But it's kind of, he's given us all the doctrine he's going to give us up to this point. And so now he kind of is depressurizing <laughs> and uh, letting them know that this letter will soon close. Uh, before we read the text before us this morning, I just want to remind us that when Christianity came onto the scene, as we mentioned several weeks ago, after the death and resurrection of Christ, it found a very divided society, uh, much more than even ours today, if you can believe that or not. With all the divisions out there in our society, it was a lot worse back then. Uh, Some of the divisions, I just want to remind you, were nationalistic. They were Greeks hating the Romans because they ruled over them. And uh, the Romans looked down on basically everybody, as inferior, because they were able to conquer everybody (laughs) during that time. Uh, Some of the divisions were racial between the Romans and the Greeks, the Jews and the Arabs. A lot of those divisions still exist today. Uh, There were rivalries even between cities um, because they were always paranoid that they were going to take over each other. And so there was a a lot of things going on, but probably the sharpest division of all those was in the, the area of religion. Because you had the Jews with their strict monotheistic Old Testament viewpoint and all the, the laws that went along with that. And then you had the religions, the pagan religion of the Gentiles, 
all their pagan gods, and you couldn't find a, a more diverse religious world back then. The Jews looked upon the Gentiles as heathen, not very nice, and some of the Greeks uh, counted, uh, were counted as barbarians because they didn't know, um, people didn't know their language, so they counted everybody else who didn't know Greek, barbarians. So it's very hard to imagine div- divisiveness being more prevalent than it is today, but that's how it was when the new church, the new church uh, became a reality. What is interesting, though, is these divisions, as prevalent as they were in the society in which they lived, they did not divide Christians for the most part. Christians were unified. Uh, Christians simply transcended over all those divisions so that the church from the very beginning was composed of not just Jews, but Gentiles. Not just those who were free, but those who were slaves. Not just Greeks, but Romans, blacks and whites, rich and poor, and so forth. And, and all of this uh, became very evident even in the church of Antioch uh, when you look at their leadership. You had uh, various leaders from different cultural backgrounds unified in the church of Antioch in their leadership. Well, what was the reason? Why were they all unified? Well, they all knew the risen Christ. They all were Christians. They all followed the Son of God. And they knew very well that because Jesus Christ had had accepted them without any condition, who were they to not accept somebody else into the family of God or into the church of Christ? And they realized that, first and foremost, they were sinners, but God had forgiven them. And so it gave them a precedent how Christ accepted others, it gave the church a precedent on how they should accept each other. And so the first point in our outline, we looked at several weeks ago, Paul's unifying heart. And uh, we, we reminded, we were reminded of how Paul wanted the church to be one. And I'm not going to obviously re-preach that message, but it's important to understand that we all are one in Christ. It doesn't matter whether you've been a Christian an hour, two minutes, or a hundred years. We're all one in Christ. And when we went through that segment of Paul's unifying heart, we talked about how Christ is really the center that allows the church to be unified. If a church isn't focused on Christ and on his word, there's going to be disunity. Why? Because you're focusing on the wrong things. And so we talked about how Jesus was known as a friend of who? who? Sinners, right? He was known. That's what he was known for being, a friend of sinners. And so we asked the question, as Christ being our example, how does Christ accept sinners? And we just go over this quickly to catch everybody up to where we are today. First of all, we realized that he accepted them gladly. He didn't do it begrudgingly. He looked forward to meeting people who were of a sinful background. And uh, sometimes we need to take a lesson from that. He also accepted sinners in spite of their sin. See, Christianity is one of the few religions that you don't have to get cleaned up in order to come to Christ. He cleans you up. Do you understand that? 
See, I, I was raised in a church where, man, you had to do everything and, and get everything in order. Even when you went to church, you know, you had to wear certain things. And, and in, when you were in church, you had to do certain things in a certain order. And if you didn't do them, boy, that was bad. You had to stand, you kneel, you do this, you do the sign of the cross, the whole thing. And if you messed up, well, that, that wasn't looked, looked, looked upon lightly. But Christ doesn't do that. He says, you know what? We sing a song, come as you are. Come just as you are. And that is so true. That in Christ, when we come to Christ, we come what? We come as sinners. There's no other way to come. <laughs> because there's no, other, there's no other way to get forgiveness other than Christ and his death and resurrection. And so Jesus accepts sinners for salvation in spite of their sin. If I asked you how many of us have sinned, we would all put our hands up. There's not one in this building who has not sinned in some way. We've done something that dishonors God, dishonors his word, dishonors his son. But God, in Romans 5, 8, says he demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Isn't that a freeing thing to realize that, that you know the living God not because of something you did, that you had to walk through a bunch of hoops and clean yourself up and present yourself and hopefully you, you, you get picked for his team. No, that's not how it works. It says that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it's a very important truth. Even in 1 Timothy 1.15, it says it's a trustworthy statement, Paul writes, Deserving full acceptance that Christ came into the sinners, into the world to save who? To save sinners. And then Paul says, of whom I am chief. I am the foremost sinner. And he had reason to say that, didn't he? When you stop and think of who Saul was before he was Saul, he was, or before he was Paul, he was Saul in the early church. And he went around and killed Christians. Not just for fun. He wasn't just a mass murderer. He thought he was doing his religious duty. I mean, he was Jewish and he was a Pharisee and he thought, hey, these Christians are kind of edging in on our stuff here and they don't deserve to be around. And the Bible says over and over again, he approved the death of many Christians. And yet this man wrote a majority of the New Testament. What happened? God changed him. God accepted Saul for who he was. A murderous, self-righteous, pompous, religious leader of the day. And yet, he was able to transform his heart. Now, if God can transform somebody's heart like that, I don't know how many murderers we have here today. Probably not, hopefully none. <laughs> but, you know, you stop and think about that. Sometimes we beat ourselves up and God says, you know what? Bring it to me. Bring your sin to me. That's why you come to me. So we looked at a couple people that, that Jesus accepted and we said, first of all, that he accepted sinners because he was known as a friend of sinners. One was his disciple, Matthew, one of the apostles. He had been a tax collector. Another uh, gal that we looked at was in John chapter 8, uh, the woman uh, who was caught in adultery. And then he also not just looked, accepted sinners, but he accepted those who were outcasts. Even uh, 
more than the, the uh, hated tax collectors, were a segment of society known as lepers. And they were kept outside the city gates because they didn't want to contaminate. They didn't want them to contaminate anyone else with their disease. But you know what? Jesus even accepted these outcasts and he healed several. Um, and he actually touched them when he healed them, which was just a major no-no back in the day. You just didn't do that. And so he kind of blew the religious Pharisees' minds when he would do something like that because they thought, well, those people are unclean. That's why they're sick. And so they wouldn't do anything for them, just put them out of the city. But Jesus reached out to them. And he also reached out to the unclean. And we talked about the lady in Mark 5 who was unclean, considered unclean because she was suffering from, a, uh, from bleeding for 12 years. And she reached out and touched Jesus and was healed. Uh, and he uh, confronted that. The point is, is that Jesus accepted people like this. Now, we may not be sinners like they were, but you know what? We are all sinners. The Bible says we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned in some way. And there's nothing we can do before a holy God to earn his favor. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter 64, we read this verse. It says, for all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. That kind of has the idea of menstrual rags. It's just thrown out, which kind of ties in with the lady back in, in Mark. They're all unclean. Everything's unclean. And that's kind of the way God looks at our righteous acts. And so we, we, we don't want to become pious in our Christianity and think somehow that God owes us something because he had accepted us when we were at our worst. So he accepts them gladly. He accepts sinners in spite of their sin. We also looked at Jesus receives sinners impartially, impartially. In John chapter 6, verse 37, we read this verse, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Okay? That's a promise. In Romans chapter 2, verse 11, Paul said, there is no partiality with God. It's not based on what you wear, what you look like, what your society, societal background is, what kind of job you have, what kind of family you've come from. What colors your skin? That's not why God saves you. There's no partiality with God. Even in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and he said this, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. In any nation. See, he's speaking to some of the divisiveness that existed. And he's saying it doesn't matter what your background is. If you come... To Christ, repentant of your sins, he will receive you gladly. He'll receive you in spite of your sin. He'll also receive you impartially. And then we also said that he receives them for his highest reason, the glory of God. God established his eternal plan for the redemption of of mankind for his glory. For his glory. And so we've seen Paul's unifying heart. And if you missed that message, you can go back and listen to that. All right, but it's on the the app and it's on the the, the podcast and all that. But today we want to pick up on the second point here, Paul's satisfied heart. Paul's satisfied heart. And I want to read our our text for us here this morning, beginning in verse 14. 
Paul writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with the knowledge, with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. Paul tells the church at Rome, he tells these Roman Christians in his opening kind of statement here that, you know what, they're doing okay. He says, I'm satisfied with you. I'm satisfied with you. If you look all the way back to chapter 1 in Romans, he actually opens up this whole book this way. Romans chapter 1, verse 8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of your faith that is proclaimed in all the world. And so Paul wants them to know that he's, he's thankful. And then he lists various things that he's thankful for. And he's reminding them once again of what he said earlier. He's just kind of reiterating the point that he's you know, that they're, they're, doing good, they're doing a good job in their spiritual lives. He wanted to encourage them. And so he starts off the letter thanking them for their, their uh, spirituality. He thanks them for their faith in Christ, that it's been proclaimed all over. He's heard about them. Now remember, this is a group of people that he's never met. He's never met these folks. And so... In Romans 15, we get to the end of the book, and what has Paul done through the previous 14 chapters? He's gone over doctrine, over doctrine, over doctrine. He had to say some very hard things, did he not? I mean, they were hard for us to bear as we were teaching through them and studying through them. So can you imagine if you were the personal recipient of this letter? I mean, you're probably right now thinking, man, I, I think this guy's a little ticked off at us. Just with all the stuff he shared with us. And he's done it so boldly. And that's why he says there in verse 15, on some of the points I've written to you very boldly as a way of reminder. Now, you can look at this as a, uh, he's, he's criticizing them or he's complaining about them, but that's not the case at all. He didn't want them to think that somehow he thought they were deficient in their faith. That's why he writes this again at the end of the book. He starts off at the beginning of the book, hey, I thank God for your faith. Everybody's hearing about how great you're doing. Great, now i got some stuff to share with you. He shares all this hard theology with them. And by the time he's done, they're probably going, oh, <laughs> like we were. <laughs> right? I mean, it kind of beats you up, the book of Romans. And so he comes back to that and he says, hey, I just want to remind you <laughs> that you are, are doing well. I'm satisfied about you. I'm satisfied about you being in Christ. So it's really a compliment. It's really a compliment. Paul's aware that his, his believers here in Rome are doing well in their spiritual walk. Even though he's never seen them. Because he's heard all these testimonies about their faith and their life. And their virtues. And their morality. All these things. Even though they were living in the armpit of the world, really, they were able to maintain their spirituality. 
sometimes I hear Christians say, oh, you know, you know, they almost make excuse for their sin because they live in the Bay Area. <laughs> you know, have you ever heard that? Well, you know, we live in the Bay Area. You know, what are you going to do? <laughs> hey, that's no excuse. That's no excuse. They had it a lot worse than we do here. Trust me. That's not an excuse to look away or to overlook sin in our lives. I get it. Less than 4% of the population in this Bay Area goes to any church. Any church. That includes those that just go on Easter and Christmas. That includes those that go to the Mormon church and the Jehovah Witness. All the less than 4% of people go to church. I mean, that is amazing. Especially if you don't come from here. You know, especially if you come from someplace like the South, you're going, man, what's wrong with these people? <laughs> right? It's just a different beast out here, literally. But you know what? God has called us to this place. He's called us to share the light of the world, the light of the gospel, the good news of the the glorious death and resurrection of Christ to people who are lost. And you know what? There's there's no excuse. Well, I don't know who I would share it with. Trust me. Just, Just walk out of the building and go down the street. I mean, you can find 10, 15 people that don't know the Lord and they need to hear the gospel. And so he's encouraged with them, and he's, he's in a way complimenting them because they're saying, you know what? As brothers and sisters in Christ, you are doing well. I'm satisfied about you. And they made up the church there. So by inference, you could actually say, you know what? He gives us three criteria here, you might say, that we can not only evaluate ourselves by, but even our church by. Because as individuals, we make up a church, do we not? And so the first thing here that he mentions, he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of, what's he say? Goodness. Full of goodness. So the first thing that he commends them for was their goodness. Their, what that means is their high moral character. The way they lived. And he says that it was something that just filled up the Roman church. It was just evident to everybody that the church was full of goodness. This is a a rare word. Uh, It's not found in classical Greek at all. It's, It's used in the Septuagint elsewhere in Paul's writings. But by some later church writers. Um. It's significant because it refers to moral and ethical goodness. That's what we're talking about here. As well as what we would most naturally think of, namely kindness, thoughtfulness, um, charity toward the poor, things like that. If people are that way, you would say, well, that's a pretty good person by the world standard. And this is important because you might find a little tension here because you're thinking, well, wait a minute. Um, when we go back to Romans chapter 3, I think we read this a couple of weeks ago, doesn't Paul say in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, quoting out of some of the Psalms, he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. And then he says this, no one does good. (laughs) 
Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom, the venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You read that and you say, wait a minute, what happened to him? I mean, I thought that no one was good. And now he's saying that they're full of goodness? Where does this come from? How can this possibly be? How can Paul say that anyone is full of goodness, let alone an entire church at Rome? The answer is obviously this. The answer is what? They became transformed. They became Christians. They were transformed by God's glorious grace. They have been turned from their sin, which they used to follow, to what? To faith, to the Savior. They have been declared righteous by God. And they live in a righteous way by the power of the Holy Spirit. Robert Haldane writes this. He says, it is true in our flesh there is nothing good. But it is equally true that from the work of the Spirit, our hearts may be full of goodness. Isn't that a weird thing? Even though there's nothing good within our flesh, nothing, nothing. We can be full of goodness. As a matter of fact, that's the normal condition of a believer. A normal believer is full of goodness it's not a, not a matter of being some super performing, super class Christian, super saint. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about anyone who has been touched by the power of God, has been transformed by his power, is full of goodness. If you look at Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, we see... Some of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. It says in verse 22. It lists, I'm not going to go through it but for time's sake, but it lists, if you're curious, you can read the fruit of the flesh right before that, right? We're not going to go into that. We're going to stay positive this morning, okay? So that's very real stuff. You can read that on your own time. But in verse 22, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit, notice it's fruit. It's not fruits. It's not a cornucopia that you get to pick which one you want. That's not how the fruit of the Spirit works, beloved. Either you have it or you don't. You don't get to pick and choose which one. And I've heard Christians say that. You know, oh, you look a little depressed today. What's wrong? Ah, you know, just that, that, that joy, that fruit is just evading me today. <laughs> just don't have that fruit today. But I got a lot of peace. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. But it says the fruit of the Spirit is what? Entirely love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Oh, look at what we have there. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also what? Walk by the Spirit. 
So don't become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This isn't something you're doing on your own. You don't get to hold yourself up as some super class of Christian and saying, oh, these poor fleshly Christians over here, you know, we need to pray for them. You know, I, I've, I've grown out of my sin. I've actually heard Christians say this. Supposed Christians say this. I don't deal with sin anymore. What? Are you kidding me? Let me, I don't believe you. Let me follow you around for 10 minutes. You know, I mean, that's all it would take with me. Maybe it would take an hour with them. I don't know. But, you know, you, you can see our sin is very evident in our lives. And so let's not, you know, play games. And the only way that we can have any goodness is by God imparting that goodness, right, into us through the fruit of the Spirit. But the Spirit can only bear fruit in lives of believers, if you're not a believer here this morning, you have no access to the fruit of the Spirit. I'm sorry, but that's how it works. You have to come to Christ. You have to repent of your sins. You have to cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. You need to come to the end of yourselves, realizing that there's nothing you can do in and of yourselves to save yourself. But God has done everything for you through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this fruit is only available for those who are believers in Christ, such as this church in Rome, those who are submissive to his divine will and his power. That's what it means to be a Christian, by the way. You don't get to become a Christian and then go do whatever you want. You know, there's, there's two classes of, of slaves in the world today. Either you're a slave of Satan or you're a slave of Christ. That's it. There's, there's, nothing, there's no gray area in between the two. You can't have your foot in and you know, your big toe in and, and, and out. You, you can't do that. Either you serve the enemy, the arch enemy of, of God, his enemy, Satan, or you serve his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. With that being said... As children of God, as those who put our faith in Christ and we've seen him transform our lives, make us something that we weren't before, all of us who are believers here should have some form of testimony. Here's what was going on before I was a Christian. I heard the truth of God. God transformed me. He changed me. He changed my mind, my thinking. He gave me new desires. He made me a new creature in Christ. And because of that... Now I want to live for him. I've changed. And that change should be evident to not only yourself, but to those around you. Now that doesn't mean we're perfect. Okay, because we're not, as I just stated. But what Paul's point here is that, hey, I know you're not perfect, but I know you're not spiritually deficient either. See, the problem with the church today, I'll just be real frank, we have a lot of Christians who are spiritually deficient. They're not taking their vitamins. <laughs> They're just not. They're not eating the right stuff. They're not, they're not taking care of their spiritual soul the way God intends us to as his children. They're eating junk food. They're nibbling on candy. And God is in heaven going, what are you doing? You have everything 
within yourself through the power of Christ to live a life that is pleasing to me. What are you caught up with this? What are you doing here? Why is this going on? And it's because sometimes we're spiritually deficient. We choose the wrong thing. And sometimes we even do it willfully. And so this letter here that Paul makes is is no reference to particular problems in Rome. He's not pointing out, oh, you know, you want to look at a problem church, go to the next book, right? The church at Corinth. I mean, they, they had major problems going on. But here, they were doing okay. Matter of fact, he even says that he was satisfied with them. These believers genuinely hated evil and they loved righteousness. Why? Because that's what a believer does. And they lived accordingly. They were obedient to the Lord. Apparently they were kind, they were gracious, they were generous, they were humble. I mean, by their moral standing, their moral goodness, they gave abundant evidence that something happened to them. Something changed in their lives. And the good works in which God ordains for all believers to walk in, Ephesians 2.10 tells us, were evident in their lives. If you look over to uh, the book of Colossians just quickly, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. It's also written, obviously, by the Apostle Paul. And he says here, in verse 3, he says, We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previous, previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world. Also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. See, if you've come to a point in time, beloved, in your life where you've understood the grace of God in truth, you've understood the truth that, you know what, you are a sinner, that there's no way that you can save yourself, but God is so gracious that he's provided a way out of that sinful life and he's sent his son to the cross to die on your behalf for your sins, to pay your debt. And not only to die, but to be raised the third day victorious over sin and death. What a wonderful truth that is for us to comprehend and understand. See, that's genuine Christian gospel. That's genuine Christianity. If you don't show any evidence of God's goodness in your life, and if you don't have any good works to show in your life, according to God, you're not a Christian. That's just what he says. And sometimes it's good for us to pause and to look at our own lives and say, okay, how is God working in our lives? Because, you know, we've all been up on the spiritual mountaintop, you know, where we've had felt the conviction and boy, prayed the prayer and done all that. And and then we come down into the valley and it's like, man, we're struggling with sin every day. What's going on? Well, God has given us the ability to be victorious over sin 
if we're willing to submit to his word, to his spirit in our daily living. We're not going to be perfect. We're never going to be perfect this side of glory. So get that out of your head. But sin should be a decreasing evidence in your life as a believer. And that's why, as Christians, we need to practice grace when sometimes we run into Christians who are a little, maybe a little rough around the edges, we say. You know, maybe they let a word fly now and then. that Whoa, don't they know you don't swear in church? I mean, you know, and so we, we put on this mask sometimes that somehow that we have to act a certain way. God does not expect that of us. He wants us to be who we are in Christ. He wants us to strive for holiness in our lives and our speech and our thinking. But you know what? Occasional time when we goof up, guess what? He's not there with a hammer ready to hit us over the head. As a matter of fact, 1 John makes it very evident. 1 John 1, 9, it says, kind of when you sin, you what? If you confess your sins... You're faithful, he's faithful and just, forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And sometimes that word, if, and I think it should be there, it should be translated since. Since. Since we confess our sins. It's not an option. Why would it be an option for a Christian to confess their sins? There's no, there's no threat of penalty. I mean, I, I, I once was in the hospital with someone who was kind of in a comatose state. They couldn't talk. And I was called there, just didn't know the family, whatever. It's a chaplain. I'm talking to them, and the family's telling me, well, you know, we were praying that they will wake up because, you know, they, they just need to confess their sins. And I said, well, are they a Christian? Well, yeah, they made a profession of faith in Christ, you know. Years ago, and I said, well, is there something in their life that, well, no, but doesn't the Bible say, you know, that if you don't confess your sins, you're going to go to hell? And I'm like, no, it doesn't say that <laughs> in that specific way. And so I was able to clarify with them. But they thought somehow if their loved one died without waking up and confessing any known sin, that they were going to go to hell. I mean, what kind of Christianity would that be? What kind of life would that be? We can go 10 minutes without wondering, okay, are we going to hell? Are we going to heaven? See, that's not how God saves us. God saves us thoroughly. He saves us completely. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that he even chose us for salvation, what? Before the foundation of the world. I mean, some of you are rather old, but I don't think you've been around since the foundation of the world. (laughs) You just haven't been. But if you're a believer here today, that's when God set his love upon you. I mean, that's just an amazing thought. And so strike out of your mind the idea that somehow we need to do the dance before God, before he'll hug us. Because that's just not Bible. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God is there graciously with his arms open wide, ready to forgive any who would come to him. And so you have to ask yourself, are you full of this goodness? Would Paul say this of me? Would he say this of you? That I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness. Would he say that about our church? 
See, if we can't answer yes to those questions based upon the doctrinal truth that we've just heard, it's time for self-examination. It's time for you to stop and to examine your own life. During what, what Peter had in mind when he wrote almost immediately after spoken, spoken about this, this goodness, need for goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and loving amongst Christians. He says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. 1 Peter chap, or 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. He says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent... To what? To confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. You will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're called to confirm our calling. It's not good enough that in the fifth grade you raised your hand when the Sunday school teacher said, does anybody want to be saved? And they prayed the sinner's prayer. That's not good enough. That's not salvation. I mean, you could have been saved then. I don't know. But if God hasn't done a whole lot for you since then, (laughs) and you don't see him active in your life, and you don't see good works being produced by the Spirit of God, and you don't sense this goodness that God has implanted in you through Christ and through the power of his Spirit then you might want to re-examine your salvation. You can't lose your salvation. We would never teach that. The Bible teaches the perseverance of the saints. But it doesn't teach the mentality of once saved, always saved. We hear that all the time. And that's kind of a, a poor way to describe what we would call the perseverance of the saints. What the perseverance of the saints is, is that if you are genuinely saved by God, you will persevere. Literally, there's no falling away for you, ever. You are secure in the hands of God. Thank God for that promise, right? I mean, thank God that we can go to bed at night knowing that when we wake up in the morning, we're still his. (laughs) We're still his. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. So they were full of this goodness. Secondly, Paul says, Back to Romans 15. He says, I'm satisfied about you, not just because you're, you're full of, of goodness, but also that you're filled with all knowledge. You're filled with all knowledge. He commends the church here at Rome, these individuals, for being filled with knowledge. Now, this doesn't, it's not speaking to some kind of academic sense. All right. But rather them understanding practically the Christian faith. They understand practically what it means to live in a a wholesome way. They they understand practically what it means to be helpful to others in their conduct. Um, He's not talking about human knowledge, but he's talking about deep knowledge of God's truth. Deep knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn back a couple pages just to Romans 12. Because it reminded me of this, these verses. And we already studied through this. So we'll just make a couple comments here. But Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Paul is urging us here to be transformed by the what? Renewing of our, our minds. He says, I appeal 
to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, separated entirely onto him, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he says this in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by the testing that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. See, Paul made a link here between thinking like a Christian and what? Acting like one, living like one. See, we got a, a bunch of people in the churches today that basically say they're a Christian, but they don't live anything like Christ. They don't act it. And you're never going to act like a Christian unless you begin to think properly about who Christ is, who you are in Christ. What does his word say? I mean, that's why we're grace, what, Bible church. You know, we're not the first church of what's happening now or, you know, whatever. We don't care about that stuff. We care about God's word. We care about teaching God's word to God's people so that they can be better equipped to live the life that he's called them to live. That's the only way it's going to happen. So you'll never act like a Christian unless you begin to think properly like a Christian. And that's why when Paul is talking about the church in Rome, he's talking about a group of people who were foundationally, they were doctrinally sound. They were doctrinally sound. And you say, well, what does that matter? Do we really have to talk about doctrine? Yes. It's all about doctrine. Because if you get the doctrine right, then you know what? The practical just flows out of that. See, there's so many churches today that say just the opposite. Well, we don't teach our people doctrine. We want, we want to teach them more practical truths, like how they can have a happy family or a happy marriage or be financially free or whatever. It's just crazy. And they avoid doctrinal issues because they well, that's divisive. It can be. I mean, do you, do you not think that Jesus was divisive? I mean, come on. I mean, you know, I mean, he was about as divisive as you can get amongst the religious leaders of his day. He didn't kowtow to them. He, he went out and he said the truth. And he said it with love and he said it with compassion. But he said the truth. Don't ever, don't ever hesitate to speak the truth when you're doing it in love. Don't ever hesitate. I don't care if you're at your job. Well, you know, if I really told him the truth, man, I'd be out of a job. No, you wouldn't. God, God would take care of you. If you're out of a job because you do that, you know what? God doesn't want you to have the job. It's that simple. Now, I'm not saying you go into your workplace and just be obnoxious. You know, take your 20-pound King James Bible and start reading it. To every, uh, that's ridiculous, right? I mean, we're, what, to be, be as, as wise as serpents, as harmless as doves. So you have to have some ingenuity here. But I think that God can give you that, that ingenuity, that he can give you that ability to translate your faith in a way that's what we would call safe in the work environment. If nothing else, just live like a Christian. If you just live like a Christian, that's going to speak volumes to people. You know, when everybody's around the water cooler and they're looking at something they shouldn't be looking at or laughing at a joke, this, you know, and I'm not saying be pious. 
Don't, oh, how dare you? Oh, my goodness, I would never. You know, don't act that way. You know, sometimes as a chaplain, you know, you're around police officers and they know you're a chaplain. Some of them just turn it up just to tune you up. You know, they, they just kind of use every word known to mankind. It's just not something I normally hear. And somebody asked me one time, how, how do you respond to that? I said, I don't. I just don't. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like if I said, do you know who I am? I'm a chaplain. How dare you speak that way in front of me? I'm a Christian. I mean, these are virgin ears. I've never heard things like that before. Do you think I'd ever have a ministry with somebody like that? I don't think so. Now, I'm not saying we run to that stuff, but sometimes we have to use wisdom in how we respond. One time I go, told him he was using Jesus Christ, his name, continually. Every other word. And it was starting to irritate me, but I thought, okay, how am I going to handle this? I said, hey, what's your, do you have a religious background or something? He looks at me, blankety blank, why are you saying that, you know? I said, well, it's just, you use the name Jesus Christ like every other word. Oh. Uh, does that offend you? He said, it doesn't offend me. It offends God. But, you know. Sorry, sorry, I'll try. You know, he changed his whole thing then. But, you know, I could have handled that in a completely different way. But here, Paul is saying that, you know, with this knowledge, this, this knowledge, it's not just a human knowledge, it's a knowledge of God's truth. And he says, you know what? If you know God's truth, you've been transformed by God's truth. Renewing of your mind, you've got to think right if you're going to act right. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, he says, attaining to all, chapter or Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want to grow as a Christian? Learn more about Christ. Learn more about, read through the Gospels. Find out everything you can about Jesus Christ. Look at his example and try to emulate that through the power of the Spirit in your life. So he's speaking here of virtue. He's speaking of truth. It's referred to as goodness and knowledge. But they're really inseparable. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says that believers are to have a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. See, they knew God, they knew his truth, and they also knew and understood the power of the Holy Spirit. And they were committed to living lives that were pleasing to God. Didn't mean they're perfect, none of us are. And so this goodness, this knowledge are possible to all believers who possess and live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because it's the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells us, is it not? He's the comforter, he's the one that Christ has left behind He works to teach and to purify each one of us. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul said said this, that it's really the, the Lord's doing that we are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So when we, we come to this knowledge and then we look at 
having this deep knowledge of God and his word and Christ and all this, and then you look at the, the state of the church here in our country, I mean, that's really what's wrong with American religion. Uh, George Gallup said this. He wrote this in a Reformed uh, Theological Seminary journal. He said, religious belief is remarkably high, speaking of our country, certainly the highest of any developed nation in the world. At the same time, American religious life is characterized by a series of gaps. First, there's an ethics gap between, exists between Americans' express belief and the state of the society they shape. While religion is highly popular in America, it is to be a large extent superficial. It does not change people's lives to the degree one would expect from their level of professed faith. In ethical behavior, there is a very little difference between the churched and the unchurched. And then he talks about another gap talking about a gap between faith and knowledge. He says, related to this is a knowledge gap between American stated faith and the lack of the most basic knowledge about the faith. Half of those who say they are Christians do not know who delivered the Sermon on the Mount. And trust me, I mean, this is true. And the reason it's true is because we're raising a group of so-called Christians in our churches today that are biblically illiterate because they're more interested in having smoke and mirrors and a rock band on Sunday morning than someone expounding the scriptures. And they make it easy for the people. How do they do that? Well, they make it easy for the people because a lot of times everything is up on this screen behind me. All the Bible verses, everything. I remember, I think it was Dr. David Hawking told us when we were putting in this video, this video projection unit the first time. He said, I'll give you one warning, one word of warning. There's nothing wrong with using PowerPoint, nothing wrong with having outlines up there, stuff like that. He goes, but I would beg you, do not put the written word of God up on the screen all the time for your people. He goes, because what you'll end up finding is your people will not even bring the Bible anymore. They won't bring their Bible to church. They won't be opening up a Bible. They just look up there. Oh, it's right there. The pastor put it right there. And yeah, sometimes that's convenient to do that. But to do it on a regular basis, what it does, it makes people lazy. You know, I love it when, when we open up our service and we stand for the reading of the word of God. And you see people reading right along with them out of their Bibles. You know, we have Bibles in the the chairs in case you don't have one. I mean, those are things that make statements to people. David Wells is a professor of historical and systematic theology at at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. And he wrote a book called No Place for Truth or Whatever Happened to the Evangelical Theology. And he made this simple statement statement in his book. He said, evangelicalism as a religious force in America, in American life is dead or it's in the process of dying because it has abandoned any serious commitment to the truth. That's so true. He's not saying evangelicalism is dead as a sociological force or a presence 
I mean, most evangelical churches are large churches. They have many members. They have lots of money. But because they no longer care about the truthfulness of the gospel and the Christian faith as a whole, they're ceasing to make any significant difference. See, what is happening to modern-day evangelical churches is exactly what happened to liberal churches earlier in our time. And it's unfortunate they're not even aware of it. They are losing faith in the power of the truth of God. And a matter of fact, most modern-day churches are really becoming rather worldly. They're becoming worldly. The sermons are based off the, the most recent movies. <laughs> um, it, it's just kind of a crazy time we're living in. But, it, it, but it's important, I think, that we take a stand and we say, you know what? Not here, not now. We're going to stand up and on the full word of God and expound its truths Boldly to a lost and dying world. We're not going to apologize for believing in something that's true. And I think as we look into the future, churches will probably lose their even more influence. It used to be the local church was the hub of society. Literally the hub. If something happened in a community, it happened at a local church. But now we have everything competing. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy what is going on. But Christians will never be different unless you understand and we understand and act upon the revelation of the character and ways of God that we have in the Bible. Uh, one seminary uh, professor asked the incoming seminary students some questions, and he put together kind of a, uh, an alarming thing that he saw across the board with these seminary students. He said, first of all, each entering class was more biblically illiterate than the last year. So it just goes down, the, the, the biblically illiteracy. Secondly, he says, each class seemed to be filled with more individuals who were swamped with their own personal problems and thus were thinking mostly about themselves rather than about their studies or how they might help others in ministry. Thirdly, he said they had a greater sense of their, they had the greater sense of their own personal rights or entitlements. They expected everything to be done for them. And then fourth, he says, they were sold out to and mostly uncritical of the surrounding secular culture. I mean, as we look into the future for the church, if that's what we come and have coming up, we're, we're in a lot of hurt. Well, the church of Rome was complete in knowledge. Why? Because they applied themselves. They studied the word of God. That's what it takes. And then the last thing here, quickly, Paul not only says in verse 14 that you're full of goodness, that you are filled with all knowledge, but lastly, he says you're able to instruct one another. You're able to instruct one another. This is a, a third virtue here that Paul points out. 
And it's basically a, it's a product of the first two, is it not? I mean, how are you going to instruct anyone if you're not full of goodness and you're not full of knowledge? And that's why he uses that word able there. That word is, is, uh, comes from the Greek word dunamis, which we get power from. It's the idea that it's effective, it's powerful. When you use phrases like the power of the Holy Spirit, that's the same similar word. And so he says, you know what? You are able, you are empowered to instruct one another. Where does that power come from? Well, that power comes from the Spirit of God. That power comes from being equipped. And then he says that you are able to instruct. This word is, is kind of interesting too. It has the idea of encouraging or warning or advising. It, it's really a, a term, sweeping term for counseling. Counseling. That's kind of the idea here. In the New Testament, the word only occurs in Paul's writings plus one speech in Acts chapter 20, verse 31. And in Acts chapter 20, Paul has arrived at Miletus on the coast of Asia Minor there near Ephesus. And he sent out the elders of the Ephesian church in order to say goodbye to them and, and give them his final uh, admonitions and encouragements. And as part of his instruction to them, before he left, he says in verse 31, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to what? To admonish everyone with tears. Okay? That's that word. Admonish. He constantly had the health, the well-being of this Ephesian church in view. And always did everything he could to build it up. He was speaking to them about God. He was speaking to them about the gospel. He was encouraging them to go forward steadily, boldly in the Christian life. He did it all the time. Stop and ask yourself, do we love the Lord enough to talk about him naturally? Just to talk about him Often? Do we love others enough to bring spiritual truths into our daily conversations with them? Do we care for Christians enough to point them in the right direction when we see that maybe they're deviating, they're falling off the, the path a little bit? It really refers here to spiritual and moral counseling. He's not talking about a gift of counseling here, but he's talking about the duty. He's talking about the responsibility that every one of us as believers has for encouraging each other in the body of Christ. See, unfortunately, in most churches today, it seems like Christians have been convinced that the aspect of counseling someone, well, you just leave that to those who are trained. You leave that to those who are trained in the secular psychology and all that, and, and um, you know, they, they can handle that. I, I'm just a layman. What would I know? And what they fail to understand is that most of that secular psychology is at extreme odds with what God's word says about anything having to do with counseling. 
And so rather than let that up to the professionals, what Paul is saying is, no, you as Christians need to be involved enough in each other's lives that when you see something awry or you see something, buddy, maybe need some encouragement or whatever, you're there. You don't have to wait for the elder, the pastor to do it. You're there. You're beside that person. You're part of their life. You're speaking God's truth into their life. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, he reminds us, all scripture, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. See, that's what we need to understand. That's what our, our role is as the body of Christ. We help each other with that. I mean, as far as counseling goes, just in closing, you know, there's, there's basically, you know, three, three aisles you can go into if you're shopping in a store. You can go down the secular counseling aisle. And you hear about Freud and you hear about all this stuff and they tell you all this stuff and they'll medicate your kids and they'll do all that stuff for you because they're doctors and they know best. And there's a middle aisle in the counseling store and it's, it's called Christian counseling. And don't be deceived by Christian counseling because Christian counseling is basically someone who is a Christian who applies everything from aisle one, all the secular psychology and everything, to their counselee, but they call themselves a Christian. That's usually how it works. And they look at themselves as a professional, and usually you end up paying them dear amounts of money to hear your problems and hopefully point you in the right direction. And then you have a third aisle in the counseling store, and it's called biblical counseling. And biblical counseling is for those who are interested in the truth. I'm not saying these other counseling aisles don't have a place at certain points in our lives. They may. But we're too quick to run to the first one (laughs) because they got a little couple letters after their name. They may not even be a Christian. But you're going to allow them to tell you how to think and how to run your life just because they have a doctorate degree in some kind of psychology? Or we run to the middle aisle first because, well, you know, maybe we just don't know. I would encourage you, if you're looking for counseling, go down the biblical counseling aisle first. What biblical counseling is, is someone who will sit down with you and say, okay, what are you dealing with? What are your hurts? What are are your concerns? Now, let's see what the Bible says about that. Let's take the word of God and apply it to that problem. And then, you know what, here's some homework for you to do, and, and let's meet in two weeks. And we'll see where you're at. Usually you don't pay any money for that. Usually it's a ministry. We're all about biblical counseling here. I'm not saying the others, like I said, I mean, I don't want to give you the wrong impression. Sometimes a professional, you need it. But for the most part, go down that biblical counseling aisle first and ask God, hey, you know what? What do you have for me from your word first? Because either this is the source of truth for us and our edification, or it's not. Nothing should come before the word of God. Amen? And that's what we need to be reminded of. And so I pray that as you look at that list, being full of goodness, being filled with all knowledge, being able to instruct one another, I pray that those things are true in your life. And if they're not, they can be. 
if you just cry out to the Lord and ask the Lord to save you, repent of your sin and turn to him. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's heart. We thank you, Lord, that he does truly have a a satisfied heart with these believers in Rome. And Lord, I pray that you would be satisfied with us as your children, as you look upon us. And Lord, I'm not saying that in any way we don't have issues. We all have, we all bring baggage to the table. We all got stuff going on. But Lord, we pray that in the end, that we would pursue you and your word more than anything else. Father, help us not to give in to having our ears tickled by the so-called wisdom that comes from worldly sources. But Lord, that our faith would be founded in your word and your word alone. And Lord, that you would make that transformation, that continual transforming, that continual sanctification as believers as we become more and more like Christ. And Lord, I pray if anyone here today is yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, Lord, that you would convict them of their sin as only you can. And Father, that you would draw them into your presence, that you would draw them to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for their sin and is willing and able to forgive. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.